This is the TeamSpeak session, Chat with the Designers, for January 17th. January 17th, and this evening's session, we are going to be talking about the best antenna. What is the best antenna? Co-host uh, Joe N2CX and myself, George N2APB, are going to be discussing uh, these topics, and uh, I think we're going to have another co-host with us here this evening. Bruce N1RX is uh, also going to be hopping in here more often than not and kind of sharing uh, his view on some of these antennas. And uh, just as the name implies, um, chat with the designers implies that a lot of uh, others may be joining us in the future and talking about topics that they are uh, um, involved in, uh, expert in, or just uh, want to share some information about. Okay, so with... Uh, with no more further ado, let me make sure that everybody has looked at the web page. Joe, maybe you can put the the web page uh, URL into the text area there. And this is um, there are some extensive notes. There's some diagrams that we're going to be following along there this evening. Some 18 different diagrams of antennas, and um, we're going to maybe address them in numerical order per that page, starting with uh, the the uh, the beloved dipole about which everything is referenced and uh, ultimately um, we'll be adding notes and a little bit in a dynamic nature adding some links and other types of uh, discussion tidbits uh, to the web page so you do you would do well to dial that up into your browser and follow along with us okay um, now as we said uh, as we said in the intro emails and such uh, the popular discussion topic, you know, wherever we are gathered is, is what is the best antenna? I can't tell you how many times I am asked that when we go to different uh, club meetings and so on. Um, uh, tell me the best antenna, you know, but it so much depends on where you're located, your specific geographic and, and um, situational, physical situation there at your, at your QTH or wherever you're trying to set up your antenna. So much depends on that. That there's no really good answer for what the best antenna is, of course. Um, so we're going to go through a lot of these different uh, situational type of uh, explanations and what antenna works better in one location or another. Uh, what are the characteristics of a given antenna? And you know, it might be a size, it might be weight, it might be a, a propagation pattern that you're looking for. It might be ionospheric uh, uh, propagation. You want to be uh, synchronized with uh, as far as time of day, the band that you're operating, and the frequencies. All these are different uh, factors that come into play. So uh, hopefully, if we don't touch on the very specific topic that you might have in mind, or the very question that you might have in mind, uh, coming to the meeting here this evening, uh, please, please, uh, please announce it. I mean, this meeting here is intended again to be more general and broad stroke in nature than we have had in previous mini tutorial weeks where we get down and uh, very technical or at least more technical. Uh, tonight is going to be a more general topic of, geez, I really like vertical antennas or man, open, open uh, wire feeders are just what I like because I can use my favorite antenna tuner. So comments and topic discussions like that are exactly what we're going to be talking about. So we urge you to, uh, to, to hop in here and make this worthwhile. We'll be speaking for no more than an hour or so, um, or just as long as lively discussion is going to be going on. So um, I'm going to turn it over in just a moment here to uh, 
uh, to co-host uh, Joe and to CX to maybe set the stage a little bit more and then to dive into uh, some of the antennas that we have listed there on our web page. Uh, Joe? All right, thank you, George. Yes. Well, antennas, of course, um, are very important to QRPers since we want to make uh, the absolute most of uh, what we have in terms of uh, terms of power. We want to effectively and efficiently uh, radiate a signal. We want to put it where uh, it has its most chance of uh, doing us some good. I like to think of antennas um, in terms of uh, kind of in terms of anatomical nature. Uh, where everyone um, has a certain anatomical makeup, and of course, uh, everyone thinks his uh, anatomical feature is uh, the very best. Well, we hams feel that way about antennas as well. Um, the figures have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, basic stuff, uh, with which lend exactly to the uh, to the topic. But I'll go over just a couple things. Uh, most antennas are based on a dipole configuration, and uh, the simplest one is a half-wave dipole, which is uh, consists of two quarter-wave lengths of wire at a given operating frequency, uh, and it, it ends up having a, an impedance depending on the height of somewhere between 30 and 70 ohms. So it's a good match to coax. Now uh, you can use a ballon. Uh, to minimize uh, feed line radiation. That's generally not a problem to have a feed line that's a quarter of a wavelength or a multiple of a quarter wavelength. You won't end up with too much uh, feed line radiation. General statement, but uh, it often holds true. <clears throat> the simplest one is uh, horizontal dipole. In order to not uh, Warm the earthworms, you want to get the, any dipole for the HF bands up at least 20 feet or so. And generally, the higher the better. If it's uh, toward the lower end um, of that height range, uh, it's good for close in stuff on the 80 and 40 um, NVIS near vertical instance uh, signaling. Uh, and if you, you can have it in other configurations. If you're short on space, you can raise the center to the desired height and then bend the ends down closer to the ground if you have a small yard. Or you can uh, use the antenna as a sloper to gain a little more space. Another advantage of the sloper is that it tends to be uh, directional in terms of the downward slope, which, uh, which might be an advantage. The Xers use sloper dipoles off the towers to, uh, on the low bands to get the directive antennas. There are various configurations, as can be seen in the diagrams. Uh, if you want a multiband antenna, you can parallel uh, elements. <clears throat> the ones that are not resonant on a given band appear to be high impedance, so they, they don't mess up the SWR uh, on the bands where uh, you want to operate. For example, uh, one for 20 and 40, uh, they're about double length. So uh, on 40 meters, the 20 meter antenna is a high impedance. It won't affect the operation of 20 meter antenna, as long as the ends are several feet apart. Similarly, on, on uh, 20 meters, if you have a 40 meter dipole parallel, the 40 meter antenna will be a high impedance, so it, uh, it'll have minimum interference with the uh, 20 meter one. Another way of gaining a uh, multiband configuration with a dipole is to break it into segments. 
quarter wave segments and uh, jumper, which uh, jumper the segments to get the length you want so that you can uh, have a multiband antenna with uh, minimal space. Disadvantage is that uh, you have to uh, lower it to, uh, to position the jumpers. But it can be a handy way if you don't know where to band up it. Hey, Joe? Yeah, I'm going to send it back to you, George, now. Uh, uh, it's a logical break to, uh, to send it back. Go ahead. All righty. Um, you were hitting a boatload of topics there. Um, I think you took care of like five of our antennas in the, in the list. Um, I think an interesting point that, and, and maybe we can elaborate on this for a moment, um, and I might toss this over to Bruce so you can kind of perk up your ears there, Bruce. Uh, an, an interesting point about multiband antennas and resonance and, and such is that different uh, impedance that's um, presented by uh, different, different antennas that might be on the same feed line, for example. And how, it, I guess the general point, Bruce, maybe you can elaborate on is um, how is it that, and this is antenna basics, but still, how is it that antennas indeed can uh, have multiple bands on the same feed line, either with traps in them, how does a trap work, or how do the multiple or the different lengths in the fan dipole that Joe was talking about, how do they not interact, or, or how does it, why does it work that way? Well, yeah, good evening, uh, George and uh, Joe and everybody else on. Glad I was able to uh, join you all this evening. And uh, as, as uh, first, let me, let me ask uh, George if my uh, audio level is okay. Five by five. Okay, very good. Uh, I've moved the uh, operations center here to Studio B because I was expecting uh, dogs barking and uh, uh, grandchildren uh, making the usual noises downstairs at about the beginning of the time here. Um, George, uh, or, or Joe rather, has, has touched on a couple of uh, a key, uh, key items in his, uh, his uh, brief introduction here. And uh, um, George, you're right to kind of uh, pause for a moment here and, and let people think about this. Um, Joe mentioned that the, uh, the half-wave dipole, which is in, in fact you know, two quarter-wave uh, lengths of wire connected uh, to a, uh, a feed line, uh, the thing to keep in mind is that in terms of a radiator, a quarter wavelength of wire, quarter wavelength long at a, uh, at a given frequency, presents a low impedance. And as, uh, as Joe mentioned, it's about 73 ohms in free space, and then as objects come in around it, um, <clears throat> like trees or being too close to the ground and so forth, that uh, tends to lower the feed point impedance um, down to maybe the 30 ohm range, an extreme example. So there we've got a fairly decent match to a uh, to a 50 ohm uh, coax and uh, the quarter wavelength of wire is a low impedance um, so if you were to take something like say a uh, a four meter dipole which is a uh, a quarter wavelength on each side and try to run it on a um, 20 meter frequency now you have a half wavelength on each end a half wavelength is a high impedance and we sometimes use a half wavelength length of wire uh, when we're running what's called an N-fed design. You still have a, uh, a dipole, but instead of being fed in the center, it's fed at one end. And you've got a different type of impedance matching network to use that. But sometimes we want to feed from the end because it's more convenient. For instance, uh, we may only have one support structure. 
so you may want to slope it down and, and feed it near the ground as opposed to trying to feed it in the center and bringing your feed line out from the middle at some angle and back towards the rig. A lot of times when I'm operating portable when camping or something like that, I'll use a half-wave radiator with an end-fed uh, tuner because it's more convenient. I can simply connect the one wire to my tuner and then throw the other end as high up in the tree as I can. I don't have to worry about stringing it out. But this brings up the, um, the point that uh, in order to feed a high impedance, you have to have that impedance matching network. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't be imparting much energy into it. And we talked about this a little bit last week about matching the input impedance to the output impedance of a circuit in order to get maximum power transfer. So if we have a 20-meter dipole and we have a 40-meter dipole and they're sharing the same uh, feed point, so we've got two lengths of wire coming off of each end in what's commonly referred to as a fan dipole configuration, then um, you can actually uh, use the 40-meter radiator, but the 20-meter elements will appear to be a very high impedance and therefore won't absorb or affect or disturb your signal to any great degree. It is a good idea to spread out these, uh, these wires a little bit from each other so that they don't detune them somewhat. But um, by the same token, if you're operating on 20 meters, the 40 meter dipole looks like two half waves on each side and therefore doesn't disturb the 20 meter pattern. Something I want to mention here, though, we've been talking about, um, you know, primarily single band operation, but the multiband configuration in either a fan dipole can be very useful. My first novice antenna was a 40 meter dipole. And by virtue of the fact that it's a quarter wavelength, well, it's, remember we said it's a low impedance when you have a quarter wavelength, but the fact is it's a low impedance when you have an odd multiple of quarter wavelengths. So what this means is that we can take a dipole that's resonant on a particular frequency and also use it at three times that frequency. And this conveniently works out. If you have a 40 meter dipole, typically you can also use it on 15 meters because 21 megahertz is three times seven megahertz. So oftentimes people will make a fan dipole, let's say, with a 20 meter element and a 40 meter element, but as a bonus, you also get uh, uh, 15 meters out of that. So there's just a brief um, mention about uh, the, uh, the feed point impedance and how the half wave versus a quarter wave antenna element, one would appear invisible. The half wave element is gonna appear invisible when you're driving the, uh, the quarter wave elements. Uh, so with that, back to you, George. Great stuff, Bruce. I love it. That uh, that's a good explanation. Joe, how about how about grounds and and dipoles and and um, um, N fed half waves and what's the difference there? Because I know grounds need to be used on uh, the N feds, but why and and can you explain that a little bit? Oh uh, sure. <clears throat> On a uh... On a half-wave dipole, quarter wave either side, it's a the antenna is a complete structure. There is uh, a place for all the current to go in the two uh, two halves of the dipole. When you've got an in-fed wire, um, you need to approximate something like a dipole. You need something for the uh, the rest of the current uh, flowing out the antenna, the other side of the uh, feed line, so to speak, to flow to. So if you have a half-wave length antenna. It uh, helps to have a short counterpoise. It can be uh, a couple feet, uh, and there is all sorts of witchcraft and 
uh, whatever, with how long it has to be. The point is, uh, even a couple feet will give some place for the uh, current flowing in the other half of the uh, V-line to flow. Even if you're using a, uh, a tuner uh, with your, with your uh, coax, you still need some place for a little bit of return current to flow. As you get shorter than a half wavelength, ground is a lot more important, and in fact it'll be longer and you'll have radiation from the uh, ground system. So in general you need a more extensive ground system uh, to, uh, to handle the, uh, this current in the other half of the feed line and, uh, and to complete the other half of the antenna electrically. When you get down to a quarter wavelength or less, the, uh, the ground becomes even more important. Generally what's done is you use some sort of multi-wire counterpoise or ground system to form a, uh, an image ground, um, as has been described in the handbook and other books, to supply the other half of the antenna and to provide a low impedance uh, path for the uh, current in the other half of the feed line to flow. A uh, quarter wavelength wire would be uh, theoretically something like 32 ohms. So uh, when you when you uh, want to operate effectively, you have to have a ground for that current to flow into that is a, a hopefully a low impedance compared to the 32 ohms to maintain efficiency. Um, and a large number of uh, other counterpoise or radial wires helps provide this. I'm not going to go into the numbers. Uh, just for example, the standard for AM broadcast antennas is to have 120 uh, radials approximately a quarter wavelength long to provide a good low loss ground. Hams generally can't afford that luxury, so they use somewhat less. Um, another way of doing it actually is if the antenna is elevated, you're using a single wire, you can use a, a counterpoise wire, a tuned counterpoise, and use that to make the antenna directive. So it's almost, almost like having a, a dipole that's an L with one portion vertical, the other portion horizontal, and you get some direct, directivity in the, uh, in the direction of the L. Uh, back to you, George. Good stuff, Joe. Um... Something that always puzzled me, and then I'm going to open it up for questions. So if you've got a, any questions, if anybody has any questions kind of queued up here, kind of get them, get your thoughts ready. Uh, Joe, something that's always kind of puzzled me as a start, you know, when I started off with uh, uh, playing and thinking about antennas, was essentially, like you said, a good uh, a ground, a separate ground wire or a, or a counterpoise, as we say, thrown out along the ground is not necessary for a dipole. As you said, essentially both uh, uh, both both uh, halves of the antenna are handling the, uh, the return current flow. Um, but it's always good, we're told, to get the dipole over a good ground. And in fact, the higher the better. Am I mixing up two terms there? Can you just kind of talk with relation to the ground uh, effective height above ground for a dipole, since that's the basis of all antenna measurements, is the dipole? Yeah, with a, um, a self-contained antenna such as a dipole, the ground comes into play because uh, um, it will reflect um, 
from it will reflect energy radiated by the antenna and uh, depending on the height of the antenna above the ground it can either reinforce or uh, uh, interfere with the radiation of the energy um, if you're something like a half wave half wavelength away a half wavelength high uh, it tends to cancel the high angle radiation because the energy will be reflected back from the earth and get back to the antenna at exactly the uh, opposite phase so it'll cancel radiation directly up what that means is all the energy then will be radiated out on the horizon at a low angle so when you go to a half wavelength or higher it uh, it, it gives you a very good uh, low angle radiation when it's lower than a half wavelength the uh, energy reflected from the ground tends to reinforce um, the energy in a vertical direction so the lower the closer you get to ground the more high angle radiation you get which will reflect off the ionosphere uh, close into where you are so is that the radiation can be the uh, reflection can be substantial and ground loss will start to eat up your signal so the closer you get to ground the uh, the more important it is to have a good low loss ground so that you don't uh, you don't waste energy in the ground. Once you get up to half wavelength or so, it's almost uh, almost imperceptible the uh, the difference. Uh, but other than other than that, uh, grounds generally don't don't make that much of a difference to the radiation from a good half wave dipole. One uh, kind of pathological case, however, could be if you have an unbalanced antenna, if you have a feed line that is a um, wavelength long or if it is not brought away symmetrically from the horizontal dipole you'll have some feed line radiation in this case um, the, uh, the feed line will act as uh, part of the antenna system and it'll, it'll uh, it can do strange things it can cause RF in the shack it can uh, in some cases give you some low angle radiation for a good DX but in that case a ground a good uh, solid RF ground on your equipment uh, might get keep you away from a uh, hot RF uh, condition and in fact um, MFJ and some others sell um, ground tuning boxes which allow you to resonate um, a ground lead that might not be a, otherwise be a good ground to resonate it to uh, to minimize the the hot chassis effect on your uh, on your rig, but uh, in, generally speaking, when you have feed line radiation, it wastes power because it's not radiated in the direction you want. So uh, uh, that's a condition you don't want. Back to you, George. Wow, as usual, a whole bunch of uh, good pearls uh, in there, Joe. Thanks. Um, which kind of you touched on the topic of of uh, feed lines, uh, Bruce. I'm gonna kind of toss it over your way as soon as I kind of frame up the, uh, uh, the the question. I guess is that oftentimes when when uh, newcomers are coming to the hobby and looking to put up some kind of an antenna, I mean they're faced with should I use coax? What's what what difference does the impedance make? Um, what what why should I use an open line feeder or when should I use an open line feeder or ladder line is a popular 
uh, 450-ohm ladder line is a very popular thing for the field. Um, different kinds of feed lines and, and uh, some of the performance uh, benefits and maybe some of the problems that they bring about. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Bruce? Yeah, sure, George. I'll I'll speak about that for uh, for a minute or so here. I'm by no means a uh, an expert, but I have done my share of uh, uh, playing about and uh, and reading. And uh, as we say, we we stand on the shoulders of giants. And um, uh, there's certainly uh, uh, no shame in using prior art, as they say. We learn from what everybody else has done, and there's no sense reinventing the wheel. Well, oftentimes um, the um, the basic trade-off comes in typically when you're doing a a single band antenna or an antenna that is tuned for multiple bands using traps or as a uh, as a a fan dipole, for instance, where you've got different elements, each of which is only active on certain bands, and uh, the fan dipole fits that broad definition. A uh, a, uh, a multi-band, uh, uh, say, Yagi with traps in each of the uh, the elements. And the traps, by the way, for I'm sure um, the vast majority of us here may, may know this already, but for those that may not, are, uh, are little tuned LC circuits that are uh, actually embedded in the uh, the arms of the, uh, of the antenna. You'll see these in the advertisements, and you'll see these bulges in the, uh, the, the uh, aluminum rods that form the elements and what those are designed to do is actually at certain frequencies cut off the remainder of the uh, the antenna and prevent it from uh, being part of the antenna at a given frequency so when you see a tri-band uh, uh, yagi for instance the innermost portion is used on 20 meters and then on uh, or, or rather i should say the entire antenna is used on 20 meters and then it's used out to the first trap in on the end for 15 meters and then for 10 meters only the center section is uh, used so in cases like that it's it's almost as if the antenna automatically switches for you as you apply a different frequency to it it responds in a different way so again it presents a low impedance um, in the again as we mentioned 30 to 90 uh, degree uh, or 30 to uh, 90 ohm range however we typically think of 50 ohm coax the output impedance of our um, radios typically are, are 50 ohms, and so it's a pretty good match uh, uh, to that line. The um, the coax feed is good for that. It's good in that it's self-shielding. Um, with the use of a ballon or the uh, proper feed line length, it's not going to, uh, to radiate. And uh, you don't have to worry about getting it close to the ground or close to, uh, say, metal objects as it passes through a windowsill coming into your house. Uh, ladder line, or um, the more commonly, uh, as people had seen, the old uh, TV twin lead, which are two parallel conductors, are a, uh, a very efficient transmission line, which is essentially what we're talking about here. The coax is an unbalanced transmission line in that the outer shield of the coax is grounded. A, uh, a twin lead or ladder line configuration is what we call a balanced uh, feed line. And um, some of the advantages of that come into play when you're trying to use, say, one wire antenna on multiple bands. And it may present widely different impedances and uh, reactances at uh, the various frequencies that we want to use it. So the, uh, the nice thing about the uh, typical ladder line and even TV twin lead is that they typically present much lower feed line losses when we're talking about mismatched losses. That is when we have uh, losses that come about due to the fact that 
the characteristic impedance of the feed line is not matched to the uh, the actual impedance of the antenna. Um, you know, we talk about and, and often see 450 ohm ladder line. It's called ladder line because it has windows in the plastic um, that are cut out to help cut down on wind loading. Uh, real old timers remember uh, open wire feeders that we used to make using uh, ceramic insulators or uh, or make them out of other pieces of plastic or wood to actually separate the uh, uh, the feeders at a much uh, much wider space. But the um, the real advantage of open wire feed line is that it has low losses when you're trying to tune up a uh, a, uh, a widely varying uh, reactance. So as a result, you can make the use of a, uh, a wide range antenna tuner at the uh, at the radio and not suffer the kind of losses of the signal that you would have if you were trying to um, feed through a uh, through a coax. So um, it can be uh, used to great advantage. My uh, primary antenna here at home is a 176 foot doublet, which is fed with uh, with ladder line, which is essentially an extended double zep on 40 meters, which is two five eighths wave on each side of the uh, the center point. So it's 88 feet on each side. Um, this allows me to uh, tune it up with the proper tuner anywhere from 160 through 10 meters. I've even used it on six meters. Uh, before in a pinch. Uh, a very common smaller version of that to use for portable use is a 44-foot doublet or an 88-foot doublet, which would be a 20-meter uh, a extended double zep or a 10-meter extended double zep. The 44-footer can fairly easily be tuned from 10 through 40 meters, and the 88-footer uh, can be tuned from uh, uh, 10 through 80 meters. So both of those are very popular uh, multi-band, very simple wire antennas that virtually anybody can deploy. So uh, with that, back to you, George. Well, I'll tell you, this is so cool. I really enjoy antennas. I think every ham really enjoys antennas because it's easy to throw a wire up into a tree and get some kind of performance. And it's, it's sometimes easy to tune that performance, but exactly why and how it works is not always evident at, uh, just at first. Um, so hearing, hearing these different, um, um, terms and, and words, ballon and ladder line, open wire feeder, um, and impedance mismatch at the antenna, um, radiation from the feed line, all these things are, we're, we're kind of talking about it tonight. We're going to try to summarize some of these points in the notes that we'll have on the page, the updated notes on the webpage after the presentation, along with the audio. So uh, maybe you'll have a chance to kind of research things. We'll also get a chance. We have a boatload of really good references, URL website references that um, you can look at for basics of antennas, basics of uh, some of the concepts we're talking about here. Joe, I'm going to toss it over to you in just a second because, well, actually, I, I promise this and I'll, I'll hold true. Um, have we... Uh, does anybody have a question that they'd like to ask at this time before we kind of move on just a little bit more? I don't want to kind of gloss over something or hit something really fast if someone has a really uh, pertinent question or even just a passing question on the material that we've already covered. Any questions? Yeah, I have a question on, on antennas. Okay, I saw Pete in there also. Um, but John, why don't you go, uh, or I'm sorry, Larry, why don't you take it uh, first? Okay, my question has to do with uh, 
in-fed antennas. Uh, at home, one of my first antennas was uh, essentially a half-wave uh, in-fed sloper. And since setting that up, uh, I've, I've come across some comments uh, on the web where uh, some people uh, do not recommend uh, feeding a half-wave antenna right at the half-wave point because of the high impedance, the resulting voltage at the uh, antenna feed point is much higher, and they recommend actually cutting the antenna, whatever, longer or shorter than a half-wave by some amount to lower its feed point impedance to uh, reduce the voltage uh, at the feed point. I'm just wondering if that uh, if that's really an issue, and if it is, is it worth going to, you know, the off halfway point that, so that you match it with capacitance, which is tend, tends to be lower loss than, than an inductor? Joe, this is right up your alley because we've been discussing this a little bit uh, offline. Uh, there's two major reasons. Why don't you take it away? Okay, yeah. Uh, well, as far as the voltage is concerned, for uh, QRP, that's generally not a huge issue. The uh, voltage is not going to be uh, the point where it's going to stress components or, or you rig very uh, very, very much. Um, feed point impedance is indeed uh, an issue. Um, at, uh, at resonance, depending on the, the um, position of the wire to ground and the diameter of the wire and a whole bunch of other things, the impedance can be as high as perhaps 7 to 10,000 ohms, which can be difficult to match. Um, so being somewhat off resonance uh, indeed makes, uh, makes it a little easier to match. You don't want to get too far off resonance, however, because um, if you do, you'll need some sort of uh, counterpoise to, uh, well, if you don't have a counterpoise, the feed line and your rig and everything else connected electrically is going to be part of the radiation system. It's going to be radiating. So you'll have things like uh, when you touch the chassis, the SWR change, the tuning will change. So you want to stay fairly close uh, and quite possibly use a short counterpoise and, and perhaps a current ballon to isolate the feed on. Uh, one of my favorite things when I go camping is uh, a tip I saw from W1PID who instead of using a uh, a 33-foot length of wire for 20 meters camping. He likes to use a 30-foot piece of wire because it has a, a lower impedance and only requires a short um, counterpoise. Uh, and it can be effectively tuned by a simple automatic tuner like the Elecraft T1 tuner. Whereas if you were exactly at a half wavelength, the impedance would be too high. So it, uh, it wouldn't match it. It's a much easier to match when it's lower impedance. Um, and I've used that very effectively. Sometimes you get away with that without a counterpoise if you can put up with a little bit of the body capacity effect. Uh, if you're talking about high power, if you're going up to uh, 50 watts, 100 watts or more, indeed the, uh, the voltage can be an issue. Uh, and it would be uh, probably a good idea uh, to, to minimize the, the having to use high high voltage uh, components to, to operate off resonance that way. Uh, and if used in a multiband situation, you're going to be off resonance anyway. So it might aid tuning to be uh, either a little long or a little short to, uh, to get you to a point where the impedance was 
a little easier to match. Does that answer your question there, Larry? Okay, Pete, you had a um, you had a question um, a minute ago. Uh, yes, I have uh, points to make here. Uh, one, when I installed my uh, antenna here at the house, which is a VB, I uh, six seven years ago decided to go with a four wire inverted. Let's try that again. Go with a four wire balance line instead of a two wire balance line. And I'm not exactly sure why I decided to do that other than to try something different for the first time in who knows how many years. But it seems to work, and of course I have no way of evaluating whether it's working better or worse. Second point that I wanted to make is whatever happened to twisted pair feed line? If you look at the old books, they always talk about that. I realize that using some uh, crappy rubber for dielectric is not a great idea, but we have much better uh, dielectrics now. And uh, I wonder what uh, the assembled multitude thinks about the uh, twisted pair uh, for uh, for a feed line. And that's uh, my point. So thank you. Okay, Pete. Uh, thanks for your questions. Um, next time that you transmit, you probably want to come over to the same side of the room as your microphone. It sounds like you're way across. So maybe just climb up on your microphone a little bit more and um, it'll be a lot easier to hear you. But for those who didn't hear, uh, Pete had a question about... Uh, What's the story with four-wire feeders? He tried that some way, somehow, for some reason back uh, a while back, um, and he doesn't know about it. I don't know. I've never heard about four-wire feeders. And then also about twisted wire. Whatever happened, he thought about using twisted wire as a feed line. Um, Bruce, uh, did, do you have any comments on this? And then I'll toss it over to Joe, who, who might indeed have uh, some experience with that. But uh, four-wire feeders or twisted wire? Yeah, four-wire feeders I've, I'm not really uh, familiar with. I, I don't have any personal experience, so I can't really comment on that. I do know that um, uh, in general, I, I've known one or two of our uh, our buddies to try uh, uh, a loosely twisted pair in a, uh, a camping configuration. I remember uh, Scott Richardson and one uh, 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 AIA coming to LobsterCon one year with his uh, Elecraft K1 set up in his screen house and he had uh he had loosely twisted a couple of uh pieces of uh what was essentially hookup wire i didn't i didn't really see specifically what he had used but um he was having some difficulty with it and and it was probably his implementation at the time but something to keep in line in mind and this is a good uh, opportunity to uh to mention this is that um you know there's a lot of debate about um feed line losses and you can look up these charts that give you the uh, the loss for a given type of coax at a given frequency per 100 feet and um some of it is dielectric loss having to do with the um the insulation between the uh, the center conductor and the uh, the outer braid when you're talking about coax but uh oftentimes it simply comes down to my understanding anyway in the uh um, the general consensus seems to be that the bulk of the loss is due to uh, um, IR losses, that is uh, current times resistance. So the, uh, the smaller the conductors, obviously the, the higher the resistance, and because of the skin effect of the RF energy tending to uh, uh, travel towards the, uh, the outside area of the wire as opposed to deep within it, um, you know, that's going to contribute to it. So if you're trying to use tiny, tiny twisted pair out of, say, a, a Cat5 cable, I wouldn't expect very good uh, performance from it. But uh, that said, a, a twisted pair transmission lines um, do work. I mean, look at the uh, the Ethernet cables. 
that run up into the uh, the gigahertz range. That's uh, essentially what they are. They're uh, they're twisted pair transmission lines. So theoretically, it, it it does work. I think probably the reason it's not widely adopted, I would assume, is because of uh, uh, problems with implementing it in real life at the higher power levels, like we're trying to transmit at. Good points. Good points, Joe. On the uh, on the four wire, any experience? You know, frankly, I do not have any experience. I think there's some uh, some thought that perhaps using four conductors will give you a uh, a more balanced configuration um, rather than having just two conductors. But uh, I frankly have never worked with it and have only seen it in uh, in textbooks. Uh, so I can't uh, can't speak for experience. Sorry about that. No problem. A man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> um, all I can guess, too, is that it just uh, two wires on each side might be more, uh, might be, present a better pathway for the uh, the energy and thus prevent uh, per, uh, present more of a balanced <clears throat> nature. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Um, any, uh, any other questions on... Uh, at this point, I'm going to move with a slightly different topic, but not too much different. We want to keep the flow going here. Any questions? All right, nothing heard. Now, Joe, um, antenna tuning unit. When is it needed? If you've got a tuned antenna, maybe multiply tuned antenna, hint, hint, um, why, why do you need an antenna tuner? Yeah, I mean, everybody thought that, uh, everybody knows that you, uh, an, an ATU or an antenna tuning unit a, uh, um, is useful right there at the, at the rig. And uh, when do you need it? When do you not? Well, that, that's a topic that could go on forever. Um, well, to get technically, you're not tuning the antenna. It's an antenna matching unit. Although colloquially, we call it an antenna tuning unit. Uh, generally speaking, the use for the primary use for the uh, ATU is to uh, to get better energy transfer between the rig and the antenna to match the uh, the impedance the rig wants to see with uh, the the impedance that uh, is present at the end of the feed line. If you're using a uh, multiband, if you're using a 40 meter dipole for multiband use or one of the um, 44 or 88 foot uh, uh, doublets with open wire, the impedance is not going to be close to 50 ohms in general. So you need something, an antenna matching unit, to transform the impedance, which can be uh, not just resistive, but it can be a complex impedance. You need something to match that impedance to the 50 ohm impedance of your rig so that you can effectively uh, couple power out of the rig and know what you're going to get. Um, one of the other uses, particularly even with a resonant antenna, sometimes it's, it's, it can be good to have some sort of antenna matching unit uh, for two reasons. Number one, uh, if you're using an 80-meter dipole, the 80-meter band is so wide that uh, the dipole doesn't present a low impedance, uh, doesn't present a matched impedance, even the coax, across the whole band. So what you can do is... Um, on the end of the band where uh, it is not uh, 
matching one of the rig. You just use a tuner series to make the rig happy so that you get max power, max power out. Um, the other use is if you're using a multi-band antenna and you have a rig, it might be a simple rig, that you think might be generating harmonics, uh, using the proper type of tuner can um, tune out those harmonics. So the antenna matching fact function is, um, is of less interest, but you can be sure that you're not going to radiate the harmonics and uh, get a pink slip from the FCC. Back to you, George. Great points. So if I were to summarize, you, uh, you need an ATU, an antenna matching unit. Um, when you have multiband antennas um, that are harmonically related, well, here, here's an issue. Let me toss a question to you, Joe. My own, my own question. Um, I do not have an ATU on my system here, and maybe I'm just going to demonstrate my total ignorance. I've got in the backyard, as you know, I've got a, um, a five-band uh, uh, butternut, and it's got tuned traps and radials and such, or tuned tune traps, and um, it is naturally resonant at its uh, specific frequencies. Um, and the ham bands. So I guess when I'm operating on 40 meters, if the uh, the well, let's just do it this way. If uh, if the my transmission frequency is a uh, harmonically related to higher bands, I will indeed have problems, won't I? Uh, that's complex with a trap antenna because the traps can be uh, tuned to operate in general. Uh, without traps, without a multiband structure, yes, you would be in trouble. Um, sorry to muddy the water, but i got to be exact here. Uh, what you just said just totally went by me. I don't know what you meant. Okay, if you, if you are operating something like the butternut, there are tuned sections of the antenna, and there are LCs in there to allow you to operate on other bands, on higher bands, harmonically related bands because they, they adjust the effective length of the antenna and the impedance so that it is resonant at uh, multiple frequencies. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I meant to say is that, my, of course, I, um, so if I were to transmit, if I were to run my mythical transmitter up, you know, zoop, all the way through the ham bands, 30 megahertz, up to, uh, 1 to 30, I would see let's talk in terms of SWR. I would and pretend that you've got like a, an antenna analyzer like the Micro 908 on there. You would see a graphical plot that would show dips at every single um, uh, resonant frequency that that, that antenna is set for. Um, but the question still is, and I think I've, I've answered it myself, just been saying this, if I'm transmitting at Four, and at 7 megahertz, is there going to be a harmonic, if a harmonic appears in my transmitter output at, at uh, 14 megahertz, is that going to, of course, be radiated through the antenna that is also has a trap, has a, uh, a resonant point at 14 megahertz? Indeed it will. And that was the second use of a tuner that I mentioned. When you're using a multiband structure like a trap antenna or something like that that has multiple resonances, and that's a good point. Uh, if you don't have some 
they don't either have a clean transmitter or uh, uh, know what you're doing, um, you need some additional tuning uh, in terms of either a low-pass filter or a, uh, uh, you can use a, the proper kind of ATU to, uh, to uh, tune out those harmonics so that you don't radiate them. Now, I've got to digress a little bit here. Uh, it used to be the common type of uh, antenna tuning unit was a, uh, a so-called T-network where there were two inductors and a capacitor, I'm sorry, two capacitors and an inductor to ground. Unfortunately, they tend to be a high-pass um, structure, which will pass the harmonics. What you need is either a, a pi-type uh, antenna tuning unit, an L-type uh, tuning unit, or one of the uh, Z-match uh, units, which will reject the harmonics. Um, and the, fortunately, the Z-Match is becoming more and more popular these days. They're, they're, a, um, they're a good way to go for a, uh, a manual ATU. Does that answer your question, George? Yes, indeed it does. Thank you, Joe. Um, um, the, uh, I'm not sure if I saw in somebody's uh, blue light come on. Does anybody have a question here? Yeah, George, I just thought I'd uh, drop something in here. Sure, Bruce, go ahead. Yeah, well, when we were talking about, um, you know, the idea of using the antenna tuning unit, um, I believe uh, uh, Joe also mentioned that uh, uh, one of the issues that we have sometimes is, for instance, like an 80-meter dipole. And uh, it's the old age question, you know, where do I cut it for? Um, 80 meters um, as a percentage of its of its own frequency is is pretty large from one end to the other so if you're interested in cw do you cut your antenna for uh, uh 3.55 megahertz or if you're interested in um, um some of the uh, uh, uh sideband nets perhaps up around 3900 do you cut it for up there if you set it for one or the other um you're not going to present that nice low impedance that'll keep the antenna happy when you tune up the band You'll find that uh, you don't have to tune very far before the uh, uh, typically the uh, the transmitter will start folding back its power if it's SWR protected and so forth. So one of the uh, the prime uses of an antenna tuning unit, particularly the ones that you find built into um, uh, typical modern rigs uh, that can match something like a three to one SWR or something like that, as as a lot of these uh, built-in ones are. They don't typically have a very large tuning range. There are some exceptions, however, the uh, the Yellowcraft ones uh, typically tuned a, a ten to one on their uh, their larger ones. But what it does is it allows you to use the antenna further away from its resonant frequency. So you can think of it as uh, being able to broadband your antenna somewhat. And as that thought occurred to me, as as Joe was talking, it reminded me that prior to our session here uh, earlier in the week, uh, Mike WA8BXN. Um, had offered, well, what about uh, folded dipoles? And uh, a folded dipole is, uh, is very interesting. We talked about a, uh, a, a regular dipole of just a quarter wave element on each side of the, uh, the feed point having a characteristic impedance. In free space, the characteristic impedance is 73 ohms. Um, however, in reality here on the Earth, you're not going to get um, 73 ohms because you're always, you know, a certain distance from the ground, from the trees around you, and, and so on and so forth. But, but theoretically, it's 73 ohms. When you take a uh, that same antenna 
and then you add another half wave element physically on top of it and connect it at the ends so in fact the antenna is folded back on itself what that does is it has the effect of uh, uh, quadrupling the feed line impedance to roughly 300 ohms and if you think back I, I know there aren't that many of us who still have over-the-air TV antennas on top of our houses but uh, a lot of us do out here in the rural areas to pick up the local stations typically you would see that the driven element of those antennas were folded dipoles so it'll be arranged in sort of a squashed circle in a trombone type shape a double trombone and uh, uh, the idea there is that presented not only a good characteristic impedance it's why we have 300 ohm uh, twin lead for TV twin lead that's why it is 300 ohms but it's also more broad banded that's a feature of the folded dipole is it typically has a much wider range between the two to one SWR points if you will how far away you can tune away from that uh, that uh, that center frequency so I just want to thank Mike for uh, reminding us about uh, mentioning that here because it has some interesting characteristics that play into the conversation at hand right now so back to you George yeah, Bruce, say again, The um, how many times the impedance does it occurs when you fold it over? Well, it's quadrupled from the, um, from the theoretical 73 ohms to 300 because it's, um, you've essentially doubled the, uh, let me think about this now, you've doubled the uh, conductors, so the, um, the characteristic impedance quadruples to, um, to 300 ohms instead of, let's call it 75. Wonderful. Got it. I just wanted to capture that thought there in the notes. If you're following along, I try to take notes in some of these uh, these topics here. And um, Yeah, Mike did bring that up on the list. I was hoping that he would... Uh, he is. Mike, you're here. Do you want to offer your comment on the folded dipole? Mike, was that a, was that a yes? <laughs> I, saw, I saw something. Oh, got to hold the button down. Okay, is this working? I hope so. Okay, uh, I mentioned the folded dipole. It's another common antenna. Uh, there's been some discussion on the uh, list lately about using 300 ohm uh, uh, twin lead with antennas, and it just works perfectly with a, a folded dipole antenna. You do get a little bit more uh, bandwidth, and uh, it's just one another one of the basic antennas. There's uh, antennas uh, similar to the folded dipole where uh, multiple half waves are in parallel, and the impedance even goes up from there. So uh, thanks for letting me in. Uh, tonight's 783 is all WA8BXM. All right. Good to have you with us, Mike. Appreciate it. I'm glad you remembered. <laughs> I'm just kidding you because you said that you often forget just uh, on, the, on the day that it occurs. But I sent out a couple of reminders this evening on the different lists. I'm, I'm sure people are uh, knowing that we're here. Joe, there's another antenna that uh, somebody mentioned. Yuha had actually... Uh, uh, mentioned this oh2 nlt wanted to point out and i don't see him here today but he wanted to point out that an off-center dipole um an ocf um off-center an o well an off-center uh windham like antenna. antenna yeah off-center off fed george that's what the f is for fed off-center fed thank you bruce is something that he's found particular delight and success in can you I'm going to put up a link for it in just a second, as soon as I release this. 
but can you um, maybe describe uh, it a little bit and um, how it differs and what its uh, benefit might be? Certainly. Um, the the original one that appeared in the uh, ham literature is called the Wyndham antenna because a gentleman, the AW1, whose last name happened to be Wyndham, used it. Um, what he was able to find was that if you don't feed the antenna in a, a dipole in the center, um, it will have an impedance that uh, uh, appears to uh, match on a number of, uh, close to a match on a number of bands so that you can, uh, instead of having a low impedance on one band and a high impedance on another band, it has kind of an intermediate impedance on a number of bands, a number of harmonically related bands. So uh, it's not not as low SWR as uh, as individual dipoles, but you can use a uh, use an antenna on a number of bands with the same feed line. Um, practically speaking, when it's off-center fed, there is some current imbalance in the uh, feed line. So the feed line tends to radiate a little bit too. But uh, indeed, a number of people have uh, have mentioned that uh, uh, the, the off-center fed antenna is a good multi-band antenna. And in fact, a company called the Carolina Wyndham Antenna makes a, uh, an off-center fed dipole. And I don't think I agree with you, Ray, looking at the comments here. Um, the Carolina Wyndham uh, antenna is an off-center fed dipole with a ballon in the feed line so that it uh, pretends to actually make use of the uh, radiation of the vertical portion of the feed line uh, to give you uh, more low angle radiation. My, my side comment to uh, Ray, KTLULR, was that he said the buddy pole is an off-center fed antenna. Um, actually, the, the buddy pole is normally a, uh, a dipole. It can be used in a number of uh, different configurations but it usually is fed in the center. Um, one of the configurations you might be thinking of is the L configuration, where there's a vertical element, a horizontal element, uh, but they're both electrically a quarter wave, so it's not in the same category as, a, uh, as the normal uh, off-center fed uh, dipole. <laughs> as we can see, antennas, no matter how established or uh, um, um, are, are kind of are kind of like uh, religion to us sometimes. Um, thanks for that explanation, Joe. And I've been putting some other links up there for those who might be following along and or want to later on follow along. And by the way, of course, as common sense might tell you, you can copy the contents of the text area in the TeamSpeak um, windows and then save it to a text file. And of course, we take that text area and we put it into the web page afterwards as kind of a log of some of the disc offline discussion comments about things as we're going along here. Um, Bruce, I think you hit on this, or somebody did, um, uh, grounding. Grounding at the station is all important, I've found, especially when working with digital modes. Um, we don't want to get too much into the digital mode, but just, you know, why, why is it important to ground... Uh, to have a good ground with your your rig to your antenna matching unit and your coax feed line right there at your uh, 
um, at your station and what are some of the problems that might come about if you don't have a good ground and also maybe a little bit at higher powers too well that's uh that's a good point because um you know a lot of times grounding is is poorly understood and i'll admit that i'm i'm one of those that uh uh, you know, sometimes uh, a struggle with it because it's easy to say, well, something's grounded. I mean, I, I took a clip lead from there and I, I clipped it over there and that's that. But, you know, a DC ground doth not an RF ground make. And uh, what you want is you want your uh, the, these elements of your station to be bonded together so that um, um, they're at a, uh, a common um, uh uh, what do I want to say? A common potential, if you will, because you know. Remember, the job of the antenna is to radiate. It is going to radiate. People talk about RF in the shack, and sometimes, as Joe alluded to earlier, it's because we have excessive radiation from our feed line. Um, but uh, uh, sometimes it's just simply because, hey, the antenna is 20 feet above the shack and it's doing its job. So there's RF down here. So when you have a difference of potential between um, various parts in the station. Um, you, uh, you, you set yourself up for creating a, uh, an RF potential between them and then RF getting, as we say, back into our gear. For instance, uh, uh, sometimes you get what's called the, uh, the hot mic syndrome where you're talking on a desk mic and you get your lip too close to it and, you know, there you, you feel the zap of it there because your, uh, your, your radio and, uh, uh, the microphone connection are floating above ground and you're getting induced currents there. But um, so so you want to have a good uh, a good bonding between the elements. Now, in some cases, you can do that, but you can't necessarily have a good ground because maybe you're on the second or third floor. I'm on the second floor of my home here where my antenna shack is. And I got to admit, I don't have the best ground, but I do have the equipment bonded together. And um, what you can do. Remember, we said that a uh, I, and I believe um uh, George, you you uh, mentioned this earlier, the uh, the MFJ artificial ground or the ground tuning system. Um, it's it's more appropriate, actually. It's it's very very similar to an antenna tuner. Um, essentially, what you're doing is you're taking advantage of the fact that a quarter wavelength conductor at a given frequency represents a low impedance. So oftentimes, what you can do, and I do this sometimes when I'm operating from a hotel room or when I'm op operating from uh, up here in the, uh, uh, in the shack, is you can actually, um, if you're plagued with RF and you've, you've done everything you can, and it's, it's usually a particular frequency or a particular band that bothers you, you can actually attach a quarter wavelength of wire um, as not a ground, but a counterpoise to the, um, the ground lug on the back of your radio and through some careful trimming or with what is essentially a small antenna tuner unit, you can actually tune that for uh, um, the uh, <clears throat> excuse me for the right relationship, and you end up uh, uh, minimizing these uh, these problems. Typically, what I do is is I would actually hook up a little RF probe on the thing, and I would tune for maximum current in that uh, ground wire, and that's when I know that I've 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 got it set to the right frequency. But um, grounds are are often often misunderstood often maligned and often blamed for virtually everything that goes wrong in the shack but um you can actually have a a good good operating system by just uh, making sure that equipment is properly bonded and um i'm going to put up here in a a few minutes as soon as i find it an absolutely fabulous rfi tutorial uh that i believe is um if not w8jy then uh, k9yc 
um, out in California. He constantly reinforces this to people when they're having problems because he is an, an uh, audio uh, engineer, uh, IEEE uh, senior member and fellow and all that. And he's, he's done all this stuff over and over and over again and is always helping people who are having trouble where, oh, geez, my, my PC resets every time I go on 20 meters or I get this horrible feedback. And uh, uh, I'm going to uh, put that uh, uh, that link up here in uh, in just a moment. But um, um, bonding and proper grounding is very very important, and you can learn a lot by reading this uh, material that I'll post in just a minute here, George. Back to you. I love it. That'd be great, Bruce. Thank you. Um, even though I said I wouldn't address it, I'm not going to go in depth for it. But um, um, when we're playing around with the digital modes, and some of us have digital mode uh, adapters or uh, PSK31 type of boxes like the new, the NUE PSK digital modem, grounding is so very important such that you don't have stray RF floating around the uh, the shack. How many times have you, and I, I say this because I, I do it often, unfortunately, I don't have good grounding in every instance of my transmissions. And um, I have a little... I have I get some RF burns. I hear, I feel a tingle when I touch the ground of a rig because there is not sufficient grounding for the for the transmitter, and my body is taking some of the RF energy, and I actually feel that tingle in my fingers when that when there is RF energy floating around uh, when you're transmitting, that can get into other electronics that might not be fully shielded or properly shielded or by design just more open. And it can trigger or affect some of the semiconductors, uh, the electronics in those extra boxes. We have to take special precautions with the new PSK modem to put RF chokes on the on the uh, keyboard line, on the uh, the key line, on the rig cable, the the cable that connects the modem and the rig, such that when and if and when there is RF floating around, as often is the case with QRP operations, because you have the antenna, the actual antenna close to the rig, um, especially in field, um, that's going to affect the uh, um, the electronics operation. So it's, it's really good to get the ground to make sure, as Bruce said, to get your ground system, uh, that your ground, your ground cable is taking the RF energy to ground where it belongs. And indeed, it must be especially difficult to have it up there on the uh, on the second floor if that's your if that's your operating uh, uh, shack. Uh, maybe in a similar manner, I'm below ground in mine, so I've got to take my ground up and over and out to the outside in order to get a, an appropriate ground. So there's yeah, George. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in here and mention that I had uh, I had mentioned a quarter wavelength counterpoise. Um, as a, as an artificial ground, if you will. Now, keep in mind, that should not be attached to anything. The last thing you want is to run a ground wire or ground braid or whatever you feel you've got a big, heavy-duty, beefy piece of wire and run it out to a ground stake outside. If it's a quarter wavelength long, it's going to be a low impedance at the rig end, it's going to be a high impedance at the far end, and it's not going to make a good RF ground on the frequency that happens to be a quarter wave. So a quarter wavelength is something to avoid in a ground wire, but it's something useful as a counterpoise. And I just wanted to make that distinction. Go ahead. Yeah, good point. Really good point. Any questions on grounding um, while we're on this topic right now? 
Yes, I have a question. I have a question, George. Can you hear me okay over there? Yep, back off of your mic just a little bit and you'll be okay. Okay, this is G3 Tango Hotel. That's uh, a good uh, point that has been made there by, by Rex, etc. Um, has he noticed, actually, if you tune out the um, reactants in the ground, that it uh, does definitely require a retuning of the aerial matching unit? Because one of the things I've thought about over the years is could not, in fact, the... Uh, the reactants in the ground be taken care of by the AMU. Um, and if it can't, then this would give obviously a, a good cause, a good reason why the MFJ um, devices and uh, other things are required as well. And uh, therefore, presumably, if you start messing around with the with the earth reactants it there must be obviously a, a, a similar effect to the aerial matching unit so there must be readjustments required on the amu as a consequence of effectively altering the um the characteristic if you like of the of the overall aerial performance because that depends obviously on its return to earth if you get my point um, so there must be some re um, interaction, obviously, between anything, if you use an AMU for the aerial, and if you like, a, a ground matching unit for the Earth. Uh, I would like your comments on that, please. Joe, a ground matching unit. Any ideas? Well, that could really get uh, really get interesting. Indeed, if, if your shack ground is part of the antenna system, there will be interaction between your antenna tuning unit and the ground matching unit. Uh, one would hope, and, and I have striven uh, very strongly to have the uh, antenna system be independent of the grounds in my, uh, in my shack, because once you start pumping RF through the uh, shack, all sorts of strange and wondrous things happen. As uh, George and others have mentioned, you get a, a burn off the uh, mic or um, you touch your rig and the tuning changes, whatever. But yes, indeed, if the uh, if the ground system in the shack is part of the antenna system, uh, there will be interaction between the antenna matching unit and the uh, ground tuner. But to answer your question, uh, uh, G3, I forgot your name. Yeah, it's Russ, Russ here, G3 Oscar Tango Hotel. Yeah, well, as I say, um, that's always always uh, puzzled me about the effectiveness of these uh, so-called uh, earth tuning units. Um, I, I actually run a QRP station here which uses what I call a stovepipe antenna. I'm using a wood-burning stove um, chimney as the antenna and the earth system actually is my central heating system. And I've got an AMU between the, uh, between the rig and the stovepipe, and I've uh, toyed with the idea of uh, putting in some sort of a matching unit between the earth of my set here and the and the uh, central heating system, and uh, just wondering whether I'm sort of going to be wasting my time doing that, because obviously any any in, uh, reactants that I introduce into the earth circuit is going to have to be taken care of. 
by the, uh, the on the antenna side and vice versa. And I just wondered whether it would be doing any good at all. Obviously, I'm not plagued with any RF in the shack running two or three watts, so that's not the problem. It was mainly, in fact, to uh, to get a a system whereby the uh, the aerial itself um, has something to um, to react against, which in fact, in in my case, is a is the central heating system. Call it a, a counterpoise or an earth, what have you, but it certainly isn't insulated from terra firma. Put it that way. Um, anyway, that's my two pennyworth. Uh, back to you, um, Bruce. Okay, thanks a lot there, uh, Russ. It's good to have you here with us tonight, so late where you are. And your your question, I think the the general answer that you got here is that uh, it might be doable, but it's com it's 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 pretty complex, and it's a very interactive kind of solution if you were to indeed be uh, tuning the Earth side of um, um, your your transmission. Um, essentially in the ground in the ground lead so thanks a lot for that appreciate it um, Dave Ott is that you Dave Ottenberg uh, do you had a question yeah this is uh, Dave Ott <laughs> uh, yeah George uh, just a comment here uh, when I lived in my other house in Ocean Township uh, I had uh, I was the shack was in the cellar I had RF in the shack and one of the fellas that I, I knew uh, told me to put in ground rods right there in the cellar, which I did, and bond them with half-inch copper pipe, which I flattened and hooked all the gear up to the flattened copper pipe, which was bonded to, the, uh, to three ground rods. In this location, uh, I can't do that because I'm in, the shack is in my bedroom, <coughs> excuse me, so I have a short piece of uh, about number eight wire, which goes out to a gr an eight foot ground rod. And I'm, I'm going to bond all my stuff to that ground <coughs> and use that as my uh, RF ground. The other comment is you don't want to use the AC common ground that's on your uh, uh, power source uh, and because that will create all kinds of problems so i just thought i'd uh, throw that in there and it's a uh, uh, very uh, very excellent uh session here tonight so back to you george yeah good points all around dave thanks a lot for uh, uh for chiming in and it's good to have you here with us tonight um i i think one of the common things that that well i did it when i when i was starting out was indeed to put all my grounds to the third to the uh, to the ground terminal in my AC power line, and as you say, that's maybe not the best thing to be doing. Having a separate one going off to a separate ground rod is obviously the better choice, or to a copper pipe, which ultimately leads to the common house ground. But uh, there's a whole we could have a whole session just on grounding. In fact, I would enjoy that very much, and maybe that would be a topic in the in the near future. Um, Every year I make a resolution, a New Year's resolution, something that along the lines that uh, most people just don't understand. One of them tends to be, you know, I'm going to come up with a good grounding system for my station come come heck or high water um, this year. And once again, it just hasn't happened. Uh, so one of these days I'm going to have a good grounding system and be able to take care of uh, every situation that comes along from good match to good RF uh, grounds to disconnecting the antenna during 
electric type of activity in the atmosphere and, and so on, but grounding is uh, at least half of the battle of, of transmitting. Haha. <laughs> um, alrighty. Um, other questions at this point? We're going to start wrapping it up at, at this point here. I don't want to get, let the audio recording get too long because I have to edit it, and it's a, it's a bear to do that. So um, keeping our evenings to this length of time is, is usually about uh, the standard that we do. Other questions uh, generically about uh, antennas that we might not have talked about, or maybe your favorite antenna that you'd like to get an expert. I know that I want to ask a question of, uh, of Ray K2ULR in just a moment about uh, his loop antennas, but uh, any other questions before I do that? Uh, yes. Okay, Pete, was that you? Go ahead. That was I, and I hope the audio is better and the correct microphone is connected right now. Uh, I did notice uh, many years ago that uh, the use of things like number eight or number six or whatever wire is not a good idea for running antennas, uh, run, running grounds, rather, and not great for running antennas either <laughs> for different reasons, but that I have always used a strap, a uh, wide copper strap or... Uh, uh, in fact, uh, a lot of my uh, station is connected with bronze uh, thermal uh, weatherproofing type strap right now, which is not as good, but is uh, low inductance anyway. Uh, in commercial practice, I've seen a three, uh, three inch wide strap being used, copper strap. And while that's nice, it gets kind of expensive. But uh, the inch and a half or two inch stuff that I've used uh, works uh, works very well. And in fact, when that wasn't practical to run from the shack to the ground rod, I used multiple parallel uh, lengths of uh, single wire well, number six or something like that. And I think that also reduces the inductance. Incidentally, I've used an antenna tuner with a ground matching unit. And they are somewhat interactive, but the ground matching unit tunes very broadly, typically, at least in every application I've tried. It tunes very broadly, so that is uh, not really a big problem. Um, back to net control. Good good uh, comments, Pete. Thanks an awful lot. The I, I'd be interested in um, if anybody could come up with some references, and I'll look afterwards and find them too, but a, a good reference or a reference website for grounding. Uh, grounded and ham station and recommendations and so on. seems to be every once in a while QST comes out with something and I'm sure there's a section in the handbook for that. But uh, like some of the good references that have been posted thus far on the topics uh, this evening, I'm guessing that there's a uh, somebody has a good reference that they could list and uh, for use as a guide in ground in one station. Okay, um, Ray, one uh, final topic for tonight then is loop antennas. We really didn't talk too much about it. I think you are, in the NJQRP, you are our resident uh, loop uh, aficionado and like to experiment with things. You want to make a comment or two about some of the loop antennas that you've been playing with, either transmit antennas or receiving antennas. Go ahead. Okay, George, uh, and good evening to the group. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, what's called uh, small magnetic loop, bag loop antennas. Uh, just for physical uh, convenience uh, because of where I live. And, uh, and some of the guys who have been to the uh, meetings in Brooklawn have uh, seen my Alex loop that I've used, which is uh, made simply from 3 8 uh, diameter copper tubing. It has a single turn loop, uh, which is used to uh, feed 
just coax uh, to couple it to the antenna and a uh, uh, two-section capacitor to uh, tune it. Uh, now, of course, this is designed for QRP. Uh, one of the problems with a magnetic loop antenna is there, there can be huge circulating currents, and that's why they're uh, constructed with uh, as large a diameter uh, as is shown in the website uh, picture there, a hexagonal loop. Uh, a circle is perfect or better than a hex or a, an octagon shape, but they work too. Um, I found it to be a very effective antenna for its size. Uh, my very first contact with it on a 12 meter band, and it tunes a wide range of bands. Um, in my case, this unit tunes from 40 meters, uh, from seven megahertz to 30 megahertz. Uh, my very first contact uh, on 12 meters was halfway around the world, and that was running five watts QRP on uh, CW. Uh, I have used it a number of times on 40 meters where its efficiency suffers. It probably isn't more than about 25% efficient, but fortunately 40 meters is a tolerant band and you can do well with very low power levels. And uh, uh, I, I recommend it highly for uh, uh, people uh, who have a situation where you can't put up a, a permanent antenna or you want something that's portable. Uh, there's a number of techniques to make them uh, where you can use a literally co high-quality coaxial cable to form the loop and uh, fold the whole thing up, take it with you, uh, which is good. Um, very sharp tuning on the mag loops and most people know that uh, you have to tune it very carefully uh, because the bandwidth is normally a very small percentage of your frequency uh, on 40 meters the bandwidth is about maybe five to seven kilohertz about one percent of your frequency something like that uh, of course you do better on the higher frequencies so um, that's my uh, take on um, magnetic loops. Uh, I, I've also tried others. Uh, as George knows, uh, I have a loop tuner with just using a similar uh, piece of heavy copy, copper wire. George has been experimenting with that for a while. And um, I'm on the verge of trying uh, another loop, uh, just a, a larger loop, uh, but wire, uh, just made out of wire. So. With that, back to you, George, and to ABB from K2ULR. Thank you, Ray. Good, uh, good overview. And I indeed have been playing with one of your receive. Actually, it was a transmit, uh, also a transmit loop. Amazing. At uh, what? What is it? About three foot, maybe four foot diameter. Uh, Ray. Yeah, it's uh, it was a ten foot uh, length of. Uh, uh, tubing there that I used. So, uh, yeah, about uh, three and change uh, uh, diameter. Yeah, it's amazing how, how well it seems to work and almost defies understanding. So there's got to be a gotcha in there someplace. Maybe it's like a, a very wide bandwidth and, and not very selective. I don't know, because selectivity is uh, um, a hallmark characteristic of... Uh, um, of a loop antenna, very narrow tuning, uh, which provides the benefit of side signal or adjacent signal rejection, of course, because all you're doing is receiving a very narrow slice 
in your high Q type of uh, arrangement. Um, and I put um, a numerous mag loop antenna um, uh, references up there. In fact, Joe and I built something called the Midnight Loop back a couple of years ago, and we presented it at the um, um, Massachusetts Con, yeah, MassCon, Massachusetts QRP Convention up in, uh, well, Massachusetts. And, and Bruce was there too, as I recall. That was the session, Bruce, where you were talking about using a VNA to talk about filters or something. That was that was kind of funny. Um, in that, we just talked about, could, that, the talk other, about that the yeah. other day. George, I, I, I could see uh, I could see you and Joe put your heads together as soon as I was talking about characterizing the filters with the different equipment. So I knew you had things brewing even back then. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So magnetic and or magnetic antennas or uh, STLs. Um, um are really fun antennas to, to play with and they offer an alternative to larger antennas that might be way out in the backyard or hanging up into a big tree okay i think i'm i'm, I'm sort of getting to the talked out point and uh if uh we'll, we'll put out one more call for general questions if anybody uh, has a topic that you'd like to touch on briefly before we wrap it tonight and get some answers from some of the designers here go ahead George, no one mentioned anything about the materials to use in a conventional wire antenna. I don't know whether you want to uh, quickly uh, discuss the advantages or, or disadvantages of using an insulated uh, uh, copper wire versus a, just a bare copper wire for a standard dipole or you know conventional antenna. Go ahead. Okay, Russ, we'll cue that one up here. Um, there was another one, uh, another question came up. I think, Chris, I don't know if you had any audio. You want to say again? I thought well, I let saw me see it. if I could switch audio. Yeah, sorry about that. I had to, the, uh, the Android didn't work on the audio. Um, I just wanted to make a comment on loop antennas. I have a problem in my area where I'm just plagued with uh, plasma TV and interference by the houses nearby my QTH and I, it makes HF almost impossible to get on and enjoy anymore. My solution was I took two loop antenna wires, created an active loop circuit, and then I fed them into the MFJ noise emu uh, eliminator and then I'm able to phase the noise out depending on what neighbor it is. And it works quite well on 80 and 40 and even 20. The higher bands, it starts getting a little bit noise. I think I'm picking up some, some oscillation feedback up at that level. But I thought I'd share that with the group. Yeah, I see. I, I've, I've had good luck with the, um, the predecessor to the, the MFJ with the uh, the AMC4 that was made by uh, JPS, I think, before TimeWave bought that. That can be a very, uh, uh, the noise uh, canceling systems can be a very useful thing. And uh, I, uh, I uh, commiserate with you for the uh, the locally generated noise. I know that can be a big, uh, a big problem to overcome. It's glad if you found at least even a partial solution. So keep working at it. Experimenting is, is what it's all about. Go ahead, George. Yeah, Joe, you were you had some experiments with an ANC as well, right? Yeah, I borrowed one from uh, from the other club members. Yeah, I I, I live in a RFL here. I uh, I'm within sight of Philadelphia, and uh, all the two-way radio crud and 
the uh, TV transmitters, all that, midway between a couple AM broadcast transmitters. So uh, I have all that plus the neighbor's uh, TV hash. So um, I have tried a, an active noise canceler and find that to some extent it helps. But I'm afraid uh, in my situation, I have too many sources to uh, effectively null them all out, uh, which is unfortunate. It, it cuts into my uh, ham success. Guess I'll have to go to VHF. All right, there are some schematics I recall floating around too that, again, for experimentation purposes, it's, uh, it's certainly worth something to, to try out, especially for those that aren't plasma TVs, huh, Bruce? So, um, all right, the, the one, the last question that we had queued up here for the evening. Um, um, Bruce, do you have a comment on on uh, insulated wire or non-insulated wire and, and what effect that might have on a dipole? Well, well, the obvious, uh, the obvious effect is that when you have an insulated wire, it tends to uh, lower the velocity factor of the, uh, of the wire, um, which means that uh, the electrical wavelength and the physical, the electrical length and the, the physical length are different. So uh, you usually end up uh, uh, accidentally cutting an antenna too short because what happens is, uh, if you want to think of it this way, the RF actually travels slower through a uh, uh, through a wire that has insulation on it uh, instead of one that uh, that does not and I think the typical differences can be up to five to seven percent depending on the type of insulation um, I'm a firm believer in using what you got uh, if all you have is insulated wire go for it um, a lot of insulation is not really made for outside use and it will eventually break down and crack from uh, ultraviolet exposure and exposure to the weather However, if you're uh, running an antenna and in order to string it out the length you want, you've got to go by some trees and actually be touching tree branches, then I prefer insulated wire for those types of insulation rather than exposed conductors. Interesting. I had not, uh, now, now shame on me, I had, I, this is terribly embarrassing, um, I had not considered velocity factor for a single, single conductor wires such that you put up in a dipole and for years I'd, I'd put up dipoles I'd calculated very religiously what the right length is and I'd whip out my old you know I go over to Home Depot and get my number 12 gauge insulated wire house wiring and that's what I would be using son of a gun oh well um thanks for uh, thanks for sharing that uh, Bruce I I feel humbled <laughs> oh well um Okay, so uh, Joe, why don't uh, I think we're at the end of the session here? We do want to wrap it up. Can you can you pull it all together for us and indicate that we're going to update the website with some comments and additional information that we've been chatting about here this evening, and some other material that we've queued up along the way as well in the form of links and references and bibliography. Sure. Now that you've done most of it, yeah, we had a, a good discussion here tonight. I'm glad uh, glad to have a uh, a three-way uh, moderator session going here. We uh, got some different viewpoints on uh, on antennas, starting with the basic dipole, and then uh, uh, going off to uh, various other antenna configurations. We've had input from uh, folks about uh, some of their experiences with uh, different feed lines and various uh, multi-band antenna configurations using uh, feed lines other than coax. 
and indeed uh, some other uh, thoughts on uh, grounding, which indeed sounds like a uh, sounds like an open open topic for uh, discussion in the future. What is the optimum grounding? Uh, what's going to do you some good, and uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of doing it? It's always it has always been like antennas, been a topic of some discussion for uh, for hams. And then uh, the very last topic, um, the uh, from our friend across the pond there was about uh, insulated versus uh, bare wire. Yes, that is a good point uh, that uh, Bruce made about the velocity factor changing. Um, my usual practice is always to cut low and uh, trim it down to what I need to get to resonance. But uh, good points, good points made. We will uh, summarize this. George is uh, going to uh, edit the uh, audio that came with the session. Uh, he's been he's uh, collected notes. He has a number of uh, URLs for reference. We can pull together and will appear on the Jersey QRP site um, with a uh, summary of what happened here tonight, so that not only can you uh, look back at it and. Uh, go over what happened tonight, but you can use it um, in the future to build up your own references, your own list of uh, things to um, get answers to your questions, which is part of what we're trying to do here. We're trying to provide it live, try to get the folks involved with their viewpoints and uh, their own experiences and references, and uh, pull it all together so that, uh, so that all of us can benefit from it. Uh, and as I say, George will, uh, George will gather it all together and uh, a, uh, a concise summary of uh, this material will uh, will be handled on the uh, on the Jersey QRP website. Uh, back to you George to uh, the ribbons. All right thanks a lot Joe good job good cover of uh, what we we talked about tonight and uh, indeed the re reason that we get together here if it isn't obvious is to talk about ham radio stuff this was born out of a, a desire that Joe and I have to, on a daily on a daily basis, if if necessary or needed or desired, we have an opportunity here to utilize TeamSpeak for live, real time, high quality type of discussions about ham radio um, items in, in general. We all use email, and uh, this is like the informal discussions that we have on email, but very much faster of course at the speed of light <clears throat> minus velocity factor so um really uh, appreciate everybody joining us here this evening and spread the word and if there are topics that you'd like to uh, have be the subject for a given evening please let us know please let us know what uh, kind of is uh, of uh, what would you like about the session let us what you know don't like about the session and, and we'll we'll try to tune things and get better all the time so once again, thank you all for joining this January 17th session of Chat with the Designers. This is uh, George N2APB and co-host Joe N2CX and tri-host uh, Bruce N1RX. Saying 73 to everybody and thank you for your contributions tonight and see you next week. Same place, same channel. <laughs>